Welcome to Cancer Out Loud, the cancer care podcast, a show featuring conversations with people living with cancer, caregivers, survivors, loved ones, and the bereaved. Cancer Out Loud illuminates topics like self-advocacy in the face of barriers to care, end-of-life arrangements, meaning-making, and how personal relationships are impacted by cancer. This podcast is produced by Cancer Care, the leading national organization providing free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Hi everyone, my name is Rachel. I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and I'm joined here by Rasan. Hi, good morning, Rachel. Hi, good morning, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, thanks for joining me. So if you could please just introduce yourself, tell us who you are, just the basics. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Rasan. I am a native-born Brooklynite. I've been in New York most of my life. And the way that I came to be part of the Cancer Care family was in 2018, my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And as one of her caregivers, I was looking for information to help both her and I, and actually and my sister too, you know, with navigating the cancer journey, not just the physical aspects of it, but also the emotional aspects, you know, getting a diagnosis like pancreatic cancer, which is so aggressive and deadly for most people. It's a shock to your system to say the least, especially if you're the person who is the patient And if you're a caregiver, I mean, I would never try to say my pain was the same as my mother, my mom's pain, Harley. I mean, she, she was the person living with cancer, but I found that I needed resources to, to navigate all the feelings and questions and the range of different things that come up when, you know, you're facing this battle. Her social worker gave me a a brochure that listed cancer care as a resource and my mom was based in uh, Georgia, but I saw that Cancer Care was a national organization and that they had offices here in New York City where I lived. So I, I reached out and initially started and caregiver group therapy and one-on-one therapy for caregivers. Well, I'm glad that you were able to connect with us. And that must have been really challenging being a long distance caregiver. So you were living in New York and then your mom was living in Georgia while she was in treatment? Yes. Um, my, my, my mother's from New York originally, and but she had moved to Georgia quite a few years before she was diagnosed and she and my sister had both moved. So I spent a lot of time traveling back and forth between the two states. My sister was her primary caregiver being, you know, right in the same state as her. I did a lot of travel and worked remotely and my sister and I, we, we kind of came up with a good system where she was the person who was doing most of the day-to-day caregiving physically. And when I was there in person, I would help out with the physical too but I could do critical stuff that I could do remotely. It was why it was my way of chipping in, being able to do these things remotely that I could do from anywhere via computer or phone. That's a really valuable way to identify what everyone can do and bring to the table because there is so much that needs to be done. And so I'm glad you and your sister could kind of formulate a, a team or a strategy, even if you're several states away, several miles away even, there are many things that you can still do to advocate for the patient, like calling billing departments and insurance providers. It's like having a full-time job. And yeah, that support is so important. And for me, you know, this, this, this so much of this time that you feel very helpless and being able to do certain things that, okay, I, I can make a call to cancer care and, and, and get some resources or I could call PanCan, the Pancreatic Cancer Network, and I could find like a list of 
survivors who are volunteers who are willing to talk to my mom about what it's like living with cancer or what it's like battling cancer. These were things that made me feel useful. And, and that just made me feel useful. They, they were things that helped my mother and my sister, and they were things that were very appreciated. So I, I eventually did take a leap from my job at a certain point in my, mom, in my mom's cancer journey. But there were times I thought about taking a leave earlier and she kept insisting, no, don't do that. Like you have to, you need your job. You're doing all that you can do. And I appreciate that. And when you're here, it's great when I can see you in person, but even when I can't, I know you're working on this every day. I think a lot of times people don't realize the power they do have to help just not like when they're not there specifically physically, there are a lot of things you can do because when you have cancer, it's an all-in kind of battle. So there's a lot of different resources that are needed. So I think there's a lot you can do, especially in the 21st century where there's so much accessible, there's so much accessible help that you don't have to just walk into like somebody's office directly to get. It's so overwhelming at first to figure out all the things that need to be done, you know, factoring in financial stressors. And like you said, having conversations with your own employer on needing to take time off to caregive. None of us know really anything virtually about the cancer world unless you have direct experience. There's a lot to juggle at once on top of just the emotional strain of the situation. How did you navigate that conversation with your job and were they supportive? My job was supportive. My, my direct boss specifically was really great. I encountered some challenges when I got back to work. I, I experienced some issues with non-supportive behavior from people in power when I got back, but it wasn't related to like having time off. Because my job was not a job and this me always being there, I was able to do my work and deliver on it. If I was in Georgia, helping my sister care for my mother or my sister needed a break. Because my mom was living with her at one point when my mom's cancer got really bad. So there were times she's need a weekend and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to come down for the next two weeks. You need help. You need somebody to be there to, you know, pick up where you left off. And I would have my setup in her house where I, you know, would have my computer and my, and my stuff in her dining room, just working. That way I could, I could hear my mom, my mom needed to call me or something or check on her like every half hour. So if she was in the room sleeping or if she needed to, you know, get up and take her medication or I needed to go for a walk or something, I could do that. My job, thankfully my boss advocated for me. I will say there were some people empower above my boss who were not the most compassionate, empathetic. And I saw a lot of that when I got back after the worst of my mom's treatment, when I had to, when I had to take a extended leave without pay. But as far as the working remotely, they were, they were helpful in that. And I would say to anybody who's listening, sometimes you have to make your, a choice that's right for you and your family. I had already decided personally, if they were not going to be supportive, I was going to quit. And I realized that's not a situation that everybody can say they would do. I, I knew for me personally, this was important. This was my mother. So I was willing to lose a job if I had to. It sounds stressful though. How were you taking care of yourself during all of this? I can say I, I have a, a very tight knit group of friends, uh, friends slash family. And, and, you know, these are friends who are family. I was lucky enough to have people I could talk to and people who would just reach out to me regularly and who did nice little things for me and like would just make sure I was okay. And, and, and luckily my sister and I are, are super close. You know, there are some things about cancer that, at least for my family, that I will always be grateful for, which sounds kind of weird, but um, it brought my sister and my mother and me so much closer than we've been in such a long time. Each individual relationship, like my sister and mother, my, my, my mother and me, me and my sister and all of us together, having that that love and support of both people who were like in this with me or with my, you know, my mother and my sister and I, but as well as our extended network of family and friends who are pretty supportive. And, and I think a lot of times when you face challenges like this, it's kind of like a filtration system. Like 
you really see who's there for you and who's not. And what I had to learn is that people, there were some people who just couldn't be there who were not emotionally available or not physically available. And I had to realize initially, like, like there were some people I was very upset with who I, who I, who I thought were friends to me or family to me. And I had to let go of that anger. I think we all did. I think all of us did. We had to realize, okay, instead of being focused on who is not present for us or who's not helping us, focus on who is and take all that love and strength they're giving us and use that to fight this battle. I, I implicitly know these people will always have my back and my family's back and be in my corner. And, and that's something to be grateful for. I think a big part of this that helps get you through the day and get you through the months is having gratitude, remembering, you know, at the worst of it, what you have to be grateful for. Yeah, I can definitely hear your gratitude. And, you know, just amidst all that pain, it's beautiful that now in retrospect, you can see how it brought you and your sister much closer and that you were able to spend so much good quality time with your mom before she passed. And it's interesting about sometimes with, with mortality, like, you know, my mother and I, <laughs> the way our relationship went, we, we, my mother and I fought like cats and dogs. That's how we are. We love hard. We fight hard. And I, just, and I, and I realized I'm still talking about her in the present tense, which I do sometimes. But even in her cancer journey, we fought all the time. We fought about things in her treatment. We fought about things that were not related to cancer. We fought about just like everyday things. The one thing I think we both learned, though, is acceptance. Like, you know. Like, yeah, this is who we are. We're going to fight. Like, you're going to drive me crazy. I'm going to drive you crazy. But one practice that we both had started taking up a lot during our cancer journey is after these big knockdown drag out fights, whether in the few minutes after, the hours after, or the next morning after, like, we made sure that we apologized, like, relatively immediately. I, th I And I think we both were afraid. I don't want this to end with, like, bad feelings. So I think, I think and I think that was important. I mean, because even in the past when we fought before cancer, we always somewhere deep down knew the other one loved each other despite all the, the contentious and, and dysfunction we had. But I think it was super important to know, okay, I want you to know, like, even though we had this crazy fight, I still love you more than anything in the world. And I think having that acceptance and realizing, okay, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to try to change you. Like you are who you are. And yeah, there might be things about somebody that you love that you really cannot stand. You don't like, but I think a lot of times people go awry when they try to change someone else. Like, we can only change ourselves. And if we don't want to change, you have to decide if somebody's part of your life and you want them to be in your life. If you're willing to accept them as they are, meaning if they change, great. But if they don't, you make a decision whether or not this person is part of your life. And and I think during my mom's cancer journey, like that was a lot of how, how we healed as, as a family, like acceptance of one another. And I think as well, mortality brings a clarity. Like one day we were sitting in her living room and she she apologized for something that she did to me 20 years before that I really didn't remember. It was, it was something that hurt me profoundly at the time. It was something that was so far removed that it was like the last thing in my mind, you know, while we were fighting this pancreatic cancer. But when she apologized for it, it was so genuine and so sincere. And it was something that I had no idea she remembered. So I think the fact that she wanted to let me know, she she wanted to acknowledge, she saw how it hurt me. It meant a lot to me. And there were times that you know, I apologized to her for things that I did to her that I, at the time, maybe wasn't the most empathetic person. And I think being able to talk about things and apologize for them, but not dwell in them and not be caught up in them. I, I think sometimes with people, their guilt can block their accountability. Like, like you're so caught up in the guilt of all this that you did, you're not being productive and moving forward, if that makes sense. And I think that cancer kind of, cleared the fog of that all, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And it sounds like even though at the time it was expressed as conflict, that 
in some moments that was really your love language with each other. And it sounds like you were able to really work some things out in that concentrated period of time together, where, as you said, a lot of things about what's really important became more clarified to both of you. Exactly. And it's not like you forget the past hurts at all. You, the, the past hurts, you forgive them, but they help you inform how you go forward. They help you inform how you're going to communicate with one another going forward, the things you're going to do to show kindness to one another. Like, I've never been a, a believer in forgive and forget. I think you can forgive, but we don't forget. We, I think I think we learn. We always remember, you know, we let our remembrance of things we have done that have been, you know, transgressions against others inform how we don't do that again or how we do better next time, if that makes sense, or how we be better. Forgiveness is about that acceptance, like you pointed out. It is about sort of integrating what has happened and moving forward instead of forgetting and just saying, okay, I'm going to hit delete and just pretend like <laughs> yeah. none of that ever happened. Yeah, you just, if you do that, you're going to repeat it probably. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of wisdom and you've done a lot of processing on this experience. You know, it's funny you, you say that. There, there are times where I, I feel like that and there are times I, I don't feel like that, but then having a conversation like this with you, reflecting on these things, I'm like, wow, I feel like I've lived a whole other lifetime if that makes sense. I mean, granted, this this cancer is, I mean, it, it, after you after you go through it, it's like you, you've you been through a lot. You've been through a whole life. Like it's, it's it will age you mentally, physically, et cetera. But yeah, I think sometimes when I, I, I think, oh, well, I haven't changed that much. I, I You're right, I, I have changed a lot, which is insane to me thinking that it'll be two years soon. Are you going to do anything to acknowledge that milestone? There's almost a beauty in how my mother died because my mother died like 19 years to the day my father died. My mom was diagnosed in March of 2018, like two months before my, my 40th birthday. I, I remember I remember that. And um, so like toward the middle end of March, but she died on October 10th. And my parents were childhood sweethearts, actually. So when October comes, it's kind of like commemorating both of them because they died in the same month. My parents' anniversary is on Valentine's Day, which is also my mom's birthday. So a lot of times on that day, I will go visit them or they visit our family plot, the gravesite. And I actually will also take the day off from work. And I usually will do something, something, something in the spirit of them. Like I'll pick an activity that, that they would have loved doing, that they do love doing. And I will actually do it, whether it be going to a, a venue that they I know they liked or going to like have a certain kind of cuisine they liked or going to a restaurant they liked. And I'll do it a lot. And a lot of times, I mean, so far I've, I've always done it alone, but I'll do it and make a day of it to, you know, honor them. That's beautiful. And that's that's fitting on Valentine's Day, a day of love. And does, does it feel helpful to talk about your mom or both of your parents as we're kind of talking about this? It seems as though you feel comfortable and, you know, pretty happy to reflect on it. I, I, I am I am happy. I, I will say yeah. it's it's bittersweet. Like if I'm if you don't hear it, then probably then that means I'm acting really well. There have been quite a few times <laughs> in this conversation where I felt slightly choked up and, and near like and, and you know, I feel tears welling up in my eyes and I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh my god, don't let my voice crack on this on this, on this podcast. But um but I do feel comfortable. You're right. I feel comfortable with you. I feel comfortable with all the care I receive at Cancer Care from therapists like AJ and like Essie and like and like um Charles. I, I so that being said, if I were to crack up, I feel safe with you and I feel like it would be okay. So I think that's why I feel comfortable. But yeah, I, talking about my mom, it's, it's, I, I have a friend who's, whose mother recently passed away, um, not from cancer, but from Alzheimer's. It's very fresh to him. And I assured him, you will, you will adapt and heal from this. Like you never, like, I don't like the phrase get over because you don't get over losing, you know, 
a loved one, especially your parent, but there will be a, a time when it doesn't like hurt more than anything in the world to think about this person and remember them. Like you will, you will take pleasure in those memories. You'll, it's like coming home. It's like, you know, running home from school and, and having your mother greet you at the door to hug you, like, like talking about her and talking about and remembering her. That's what it feels like to me. Like the, the feelings of crying are tinged with sadness, but they're also happiness. It's like, it's like being re reunited with somebody you haven't seen in a long time and you cry, like you cry out of joy. You're, you're sad that you, you know, that you're, you're gonna have to not see them again. But in this time of being with them and remembering them, remembering things you, you shared, you are crying out of happiness as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, I've heard folks compare the emotional experience of grief to love, and they are such close relatives, so to speak. And I definitely hear the love coming through when you speak about your mom and something even as devastating as, as this loss. What have you noticed or how have you noticed your grief manifesting or changing over time? How are you experiencing your grief now two years later? I, I think at the, at the outset of the grief, my mother first died. One of the things that was challenging for me was I found myself constantly transported. I was I was actually physically with my mother when she died. So I, I saw my mother die. I was actually literally hugging her as she died. So I kept being transported back to that, especially anytime I had any kind of quiet time or any kind of downtime. I kept reliving like the last moments of my mother's life, the last days. And for a period of time, it became kind of unnerving for me. It, came, it became like very much like, okay, is there ever going to be a, a time where, or a day where I'm not constantly stuck in this moment? And at some point, I think I realized through being in therapy with AJ, but also, you know, just on my own as well, that you have to go through something to get over it. And I never, I guess, like I said earlier, I don't quite like the phrase get over something because it's part, you, you integrate it into who you are. So I think that's a better way of putting it versus get over it. But you do have to go through it and live it. And I think my brain and heart had to relive that moment so many times before it was incorporated into who I, who I am to move forward, if that makes sense. So, I, and, and now that doesn't happen. I mean, there yes, there are still days and times where I'll get transported back to that last day. But when it happens, I don't feel stuck in it, if that makes sense. I feel like it's something that I, I don't ever want to forget. It was, it was, it was a terrible and a beautiful moment at the same time to actually be with this person who, you know, this person who loved you before they even knew you, this person who loved you before you were even out in the world, before you were born, to be able to be with them as they leave this earth, the transition. There's something beautiful about that. Like, I remember when my mother was, when it was obvious my mother was dying. I remember um, I I wanted to, like, run out of the room, to be honest. I wanted to leave because you don't want you, you don't want to watch your mother die, but... um. At the same time, I, I know my mother's greatest fear was dying alone. That was that was something that was a prevalent theme throughout her cancer. Especially as she got sicker, I recall like sometimes she'd wake up if she was asleep, and she'd wake up in a panic if she was in the room by herself. And we'd hear her crying, and we'd run into the room, and, she, and we'd ask her what's wrong, and she would say, "You know, I, I was just, I woke up and I was afraid. I was afraid of like dying alone." So I I knew that I had to stay there for her, with her. Like my sister and I were both there, and I knew no matter how much I wanted to run away, I could not. If the last gift I could give her was to be with her as she left, I, I had to do it. So I got into bed with her and I hugged her. I hugged her tight, but like like a, a like a tight embrace where it wasn't like a painful embrace. And I remember asking her doctor, "Is this okay? Can I hug her?" He's like, "You can hug her. You can. She can feel that. Like you're not hurting her." And um, and I you know I told her how much I loved her and I told her it was okay to go. I know she's she was in a lot of pain the last few months, and I know 
this had been a very terrible experience for her. So I wanted her to have faith that the love and intellect, both emotional intellect and cognitive intellect and everything she instilled in me, everything she, you know, poured into me, she and my father, that I'd be okay, that I, I would find my way without them. And I know she'd always be with me. So I, um, I remember like, you know, as her breaths were becoming like further and fewer between, she would inhale and then she would exhale for a long time. And, and you know, I'd have this moment of huge fear and then she'd exhale and I'd feel hopeful again, like, oh my God, you're still here. And like, and like, um, and I remember having this really kind of insane wish that like, you know, well, maybe the next time she exhales, like she'll just jump up and she'll be okay. And, you know, that'll, that'll be fine. Even if she has cancer, maybe it'll be like another reprieve. Maybe it'll be another, another chance to try to beat the cancer. Like, like maybe something like miraculous will happen. And I remember that would happen every time she would inhale and then she would like not exhale that she would exhale and you know and as the exhales became you know longer between yeah it's very obvious this person is not breathing but it was this kind of terrible agony where you know you're going through this process of she inhales and you're like okay is this it because there's no exhale and then she exhales and you're like okay yeah she's still here and then you know when it stopped I, I remember with all the tremendous sadness I felt it was also relief like I'm off this we're off this uh roller coaster if that makes sense and not just a roller coaster of the actual dying itself but the whole thing the cancer which in and of itself is kind of a long run out dying but also a relief that I was able to be there with her to like ensure that she wasn't alone when she left it was a relief that like I could do this one last thing for you well I know it must be so intense to go back to those moments and to recall that to a complete stranger. So I just want to really thank you for your vulnerability and for taking me there. And I'm certainly feeling very emotional just hearing about that. And I think it is really fair to say that seeing your loved one die is traumatic. And what we know about trauma is that the mind sort of tries to make sense of what that was that just happened. And sometimes that does involve a sense of playing the tape back over and over again, just trying to grapple with or figure out, like, what was that? You know, so it's a very, very human response to a traumatic experience, to an overwhelming experience. Yeah, and well, and thank you. I have to thank you as well. Thank you for allowing me the space to share this and to be this vulnerable with you. And for, you know, making me feel comfortable enough, even though you're a stranger. In the first few minutes of this conversation, I felt immediately comfortable with you. So I I, I appreciate you for allowing me that. And I, and yeah, you're right. I, I I think it's your mind's way or my mind's way of trying to conceive of the inconceivable. Because yeah, I was physically there when it happened. I, I saw it happen. I felt it happen. But it's still a whole, it's a whole new normal that my mind has to make it so, make it, I mean, there's still times now, almost two years later, where I wake up on certain days and I feel like, this is all a dream, you know, like, especially if I have a dream with my mother and it, sometimes I wake up a little bit disoriented, like, was, was that the reality? And is this, is this the dream? And there are times now I'll just be like, you know, walking down the street and it'll, it'll just hit me. Like, I think, I think there's a term for that. It's like the opposite of deja vu. I think it's called jamais vu, where like, it just all feels completely wrong or out of, out of sync. There's still times that happens like two years in. So I think you're right. I think that our brains are constantly trying to reconcile things that, that don't fit. Like, I mean, like, you know, my mother was my mother my whole life. So it's, it's, let me take that back. She's, she will always be my mother. She's still my mother now, but my mother was present physically. Like I could go visit her. I could go, I could call her. We could fight. We could like, you know, she can get on my, she can get on my damn nerves. I get on her nerves, 
but like I have to now reconcile this new reality. And have you found any tools or activities that have been particularly helpful to you in reconciling this new reality? I have. There are a few things that I do. I, I um, am blessed to have like a, a very large catalog of family photos. My parents took a lot of photos. Actually, before my mother even died, I had a bunch of the photos already still and like on me because when she moved, she left them with me. And the plan was for me to bring them to her. And and I remember when she got when she first was diagnosed with cancer, I started looking at them a lot more. And I started sharing them with her and my sister. And that experience extended into like what I do now. Like I like I share a lot of flashback and throwback photos on, on my like social media of my family, like from my childhood and my adulthood, as well as photos that pre-exist me, like photos of my parents, like my mom, like before I was born with my sister or, you know, when she was a child or a teenager, seeing her with my dad. Like I have a bunch of photos from my mother's baby shower when she was pregnant with me, like and seeing my mother pregnant with me and seeing how happy she was. So I do share a lot of photos and it's interesting because um, people like them. And it's funny, it's, they build community. Like I, I recall, there's this account on Instagram called Black Archives. And a friend of mine had said, oh, you have some really great family photos. And this, and this person, the curator of this account, she does, she does a lot of historical photos, but she also does a lot of submissions where she'll ask people to like, sum, you know, submit photos of their families. And one of my friends was like, you should actually, you have some great family photos from like back in the day, you should submit them. And I finally did one day and the woman who curates them, her name is um, Renata. She really loved the photos and she started looking through my profile. And she's like, you have a lot of great photos. Can I, can I use some of your photos in the exhibit I'm doing for Black History Month? And I said, yeah. She's like, I, she's like, she's like I'm going to pick out a few photos I like. And this was many months before, so I completely forgot about it. And when Black History Month came this past February, somebody texted me one day and they're like, oh my God, I saw this on the street. This is like, you know, like you're like a clone of this person. And it was a picture of, my, of me and my father, actually, but I was an infant. My, my dad was holding me. So a bunch of people started texting me different. They started seeing them all over the city, but I had not seen any of my mom and I hadn't seen any in person yet. And Valentine's Day is, you know, my parents' anniversary, my mom's birthday. So I, the, that day I was going to the cemetery. I took them there from work and I had gone to get some flowers in my old neighborhood, the neighborhood I grew up in uh, here in Brooklyn in Fort Greene. And the photos were being exhibited on, they were being displayed on those, you know, those kiosks that we have around the city, those kiosks that show information about different things and you know what I'm yes. talking about? They were being displayed. Yeah. They, they were being displayed with nose. So the kiosks would roll through, and they would show, you know, important information about like something like subway stuff or like local restaurants, local resources, and then they might show a picture from this exhibit. So when I saw the, the kiosk, I saw one of these photos happen to be up of like this exhibit. But I was like, let me just stand here for a second to see if I see any photos of, of you know, my family or anything like that. And a minute later, about a minute later, maybe two minutes later, after going through a roll of different stuff, a photo that she used of me and my mother popped up. And it was a photo from the same day as a, the photo of my father and I. And, you know, this kiosk was literally a block from where we live, from where I grew up. And literally, I'm holding the flowers that I'm taking to her, her grave, her birthday slash Valentine's Day slash anniversary flowers. And I'm literally standing in front of this photo of her holding me. And... It was such a serendipitous and beautiful thing. It, it was like kismet. It was like, because how, what are the odds that would happen on her birthday, on her anniversary, a block from where we lived? And I recall, like, because I had these photos, I mean, because I had these flowers that were pink and purple, and purple's her favorite color. I took a photo of me, like, holding the flowers up to her, the picture of her and me. And the same way I told you earlier, talking about her feels like, you know, walking into a, a warm embrace. That's exactly what I felt like. I felt like she was giving me a big hug from wherever she was, like, the fact that that specific photo popped up just as I was going to visit her grave a block away from where we lived, 
it was like the stars aligned. It was like it was you couldn't you couldn't have planned that. And I remember I took a photo of it and I posted it and I shared it and I tagged the woman Renata who does the the, the archives and did the exhibit. And she was so overjoyed that something she did was able to align to you know to give such a a great gift on that day at that place at that time. Oh my god, that is unreal. Yeah. Wow. Oh my goodness. And I also keep, like I mentioned earlier, gratitude. I keep a gratitude journal. I, like it, it's helped me so much throughout this grieving process uh, to remember, you know, to be grateful for things that my mother and I share, to be grateful for things that, you know, my family shares, grateful for the people that have been in my life. Like a group of friends last year on my birthday threw a birthday party for me. It was the first birthday I was having without both my parents. And um, also the year before my mother was just diagnosed, my birthday kind of was like a real downer that year. And they had gotten all these balloons that were purple, my mother's favorite color. And they gave everybody like a um, a piece of paper and a, and, a little, and a little pencil to write a message on. They, my friend instructed everybody to write a message to my mother. It could be something that you wanted her to know about me or something that you wanted to thank her for in terms of like if you knew her personally or if you wanted to thank her for informing how she raised me and forming our friendship together. And we went to the park and after everybody wrote a message, we tied that message to the balloons and like we let the balloons out into the sky. So, and so like, you know, this, 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 this current, this everlasting theme of gratitude, it, it's, it, it's, it's permeated my life, like pretty much since my mother died. Well, it sounds like you have a really amazing support system and your gratitude is definitely infectious. Like I'm feeling it too. And there's a lot of joy there. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm very lucky. And when and my friend said to me as well, I'm so grateful to her. She's like, she's like, you know, the, the, who you are in our friendship, how you show up. It's very evident that you were not like not only raised in love, but you were created in love. And she's like, I'm so happy that you were a product of these two people who love each other so much. And you saw that and you were lo- raised in that. She's like, she's like, it informs, I think, how you navigate your own relationships. Like, she's like, it's, it's very important that she's like, you can always tell when somebody has no real love in their lives because it shows in how they interact with other people. And and aside from being very flattered and complimented, I was more flattered and complimented because it was a testament to who my parents were. Yeah, you're part of a real legacy, it sounds like. It's so beautiful. You know, something I definitely wanted to make sure that we touch on is to get current on what's happening today in our country with the movement for Black Lives, the COVID-19 pandemic that, as we know, is disproportionately affecting Black Americans and people of color. And you know, something I think that we hear a lot in the cancer world is, you know, quote unquote, cancer does not discriminate. And while I understand elements of that that are true, it, it does frustrate me sometimes because I think it comes from a place of trying to acknowledge that, yes, everyone can get cancer. And we often don't really know all of the different factors that go into someone receiving a diagnosis. And yet it is doing a real disservice to all of us to not acknowledge that there are real health disparities and that there is racism reflected in healthcare and in large institutions and individual practitioners that result in folks perhaps not getting the care that they need or access to jobs that provide adequate health insurance. You know, the list goes on. 
But how does this play a part in the way that you've made meaning out of your experience with being a cancer caregiver and someone who's experienced a loss to cancer? You're right. And, and thank you for like touching upon, not just touching upon it, but actually driving it home and talking about like not even beating around the bush. I appreciate that because you're right. Cancer, like many other illnesses, definitely shows the effects of systemic racism. It's you're right. Anybody can get cancer. However, we see we see the inequity in the kinds of care people get, even diagnosis rates and survival rates, like pancreatic cancer specifically, is a disease that adversely affects black and brown people for a host of reasons. One, a lot of the risk factors are highly correlated with things that come from generational poverty and, and you know systemic inequity, like like my mother smoked her whole life. My mother and that was one thing that, that I saw her struggle with in her cancer days. Like one of the constant things my mother and I fought about like my whole life was her smoking and her not quitting. But one of the things I found in her cleaning out her apartment, my sister and I found so many different like kinds of smoking smoking cessation tools, like nicotine patches, nicotine gum, hotlines. And, you know, it, it, it was, I wish I could have found that when she was alive. It, it, it gave me a whole, a whole new form of respect for her. This person was trying. And I remember my mother smoked since she was like 14, back at the time when cigarette companies actively like actively, actively marketed to black children in inner cities. Like, like that's a known fact. And, you know, right. and, and looking at pancreatic cancer, I think they estimate that smoking causes at least 20% of the cases, you know, not to mention other lifestyle factors that are, that are correlated with poverty, which you can't separate in the United States, but you can't separate the construct of class and, with the construct of race. Like, like literally blackness was created as a, to be a permanent underclass in opposition to the, the concept of whiteness. So now we're having this reckoning with Black Lives Matter. And I think I want, one thing I would like people to, to keep always at front of mind, it's not just about police brutality. This runs so deep across so many levels of our society and so many facets of society. It's everything from healthcare to food access, to job access, to housing access. It's even where people live, like people are living on, on top of like toxic waste because of environmental racism, which drives cancer rates. So for me, one thing that I'm trying to find a way to do is be a, a greater proponent of not only funding for research pancreatic cancer, but you know, making like like pushing for legislation that you know addresses it. As I think it's it's I think I had read like back in 2018 that pancreatic cancer was on on course to be the deadliest form of cancer by this year by 2020, and I need, I need to look this up now because we're in 2020, but it might actually be officially the deadliest cancer. And the fact that, to me, it receives comparatively so little funding than other cancers like breast cancer or lung cancer is, like, shocking. Actually, it's not shocking. It's, 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 it's actually, like, you know, it's actually, it actually correlates with the systemic racism we see in this country. And that, to be said, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that, that to me, me, me bringing up cancer, lung cancer or breast cancer I can, I can see somebody using the same kind of argument that saying Black Lives Matter is saying all lives don't matter. No, what we're saying is the fact that I have to say this kind of thing matters means it's not being addressed like it matters. And I think it's the same with pancreatic cancer. I think the fact that it literally has like way worse survival rates than you know breast cancer and lung cancer, specifically breast cancer, which has very good survival rates now, comparatively speaking, because of all the resources important to it. I'm like, okay, see what happens when you give resources to this one kind of cancer. How come we can't give resources to this other kind, which we know is 
adversely killing more black and brown people. And I honestly, I, it's it's no surprise to me that pancreatic cancer is not getting the the due it deserves in terms of in terms of research, in terms of you know work to make gains. And I and I know that's changing a little bit through through the work of like organizations like PanCan. And um, it's not enough. And you kind of reminded me of this that I something I need to start working toward again. Like it's something that now that we're getting a handle on COVID that I need to be loud and very clear about again and advocating for to make people realize that Black Lives Matter doesn't just stop, begin, it doesn't just begin and end with, you know, the criminal justice system. Like systemic racism, it runs rampant through every aspect of this society. And that definitely includes cancer. It needs to be said. And your voice is definitely so needed in this conversation. And, you know, you said, I need to be doing more work towards this. And it's like, yes, well, we all do. Yeah. Like that can't only be your job, right? It has to really be all of us realizing and waking up to the fact that there's a lot of change that needs to take place. You know, 2020 seems to be trying to prove that point to us over and over again. So I hope that, you know, this, this is a turning point. And on the topic of healthcare disparities in medicine and in cancer treatment specifically, how did you see that playing out in your mother's care? I saw I saw some really bad treatment with her oncological surgeon. Um, when my mother was diagnosed with cancer, the plan was to shrink her tumor enough to be able to do a Whipple procedure, but they would remove the tumor, her pancreas, and she'd be effectively turned into a type 1 diabetic, but she would be cancer-free. Um, even though pancreatic cancer tends to come back a lot of times due to it being hidden due to micrometastases, et cetera. But her oncological surgeon from early on seemed very detached. And, you know, part of me wonders if she was rich and white, would, would that have been the case? I, I can't necessarily say it was definitely due to racism. I know racism in healthcare is very prevalent that people are treated differently, sometimes even, uh, even subconsciously. They've done studies about this where Black patients don't get like the level of affection that white patients were, where like little things like a doctor might touch a white patient on the shoulder and wouldn't do that to a black patient. It's subconscious biases that people don't realize they have, but how it affects outcomes. Um, that being said, I, I don't know if the doctor was doing that because I never saw the doctor with, their, with his other patients, but I do know that there was a time during the last weeks of my mom's life, the doctor would do really unprofessional things like he would. Like he came to, you know, talk to my mom at a period of time and she was literally drugged up on morphine and other painkillers and not coherent. And my sister and I had our numbers on like the, the dry erase board in the room. Like if you, need, if you need to talk to this patient or discuss health care issues or, you know, concerns or updates, you know, please contact us. We, we can come, we can be here right away. Like we only be, you know, a short distance away. And this doctor at one point pretty much came to talk to her at a time to tell her that it was nothing that could be done at this point beyond like making her comfortable. But he's he's telling this to a person who was like not coherent at the time. And eventually I had to actually escalate to the chief of staff, like a complaint about this. And it was funny when I did that, like my sister was flipping out. Like, so we were kind of like good cop, bad cop. She was the person who was like yelling and screaming, which I understood because it was outrage. And like, after we both went at the chief of staff, he called this oncological surgeon and this guy appeared like within 10 minutes. This person who we've been trying to chase down for weeks and couldn't like get a face to face with appeared instantly and was apologetic. But I'm like, okay, 
you were in the same hospital, yeah, you were a different wing. I've been trying to reach you like for the last two to three weeks, trying to make time to see you in person, have a talk with you. And you can't do this. And you you appear at times my mother can't talk. That's kind of like really shady. And when this person summons you now, your boss, you arrive, you like pretty much operate or teleport here within 10 minutes. That's ridiculous to me. Right, right. Yeah, and I filed a formal complaint about it. And I don't know if he... I didn't get any pressure from him. Like, there was nothing overtly racist about it. He yeah. just seemed more like an arrogant doctor to me, which is a problem in of itself. Um, mm-hmm. Not rude or, or not rude or like off-putting in person, but just like, you know, this family is going through this. You know, this patient is going through this. Why would you behave this way? Like, right. just kind of like a hot shot kind of thing. But I think there, like I said earlier in this conversation, I think race and race, I don't think I know race and class are totally un- inseparable in the way the United States is built. So I think if I had if we had a certain level of generational wealth and power that comes with a lot of times whiteness, I think we could have mandated certain things. And I think his behavior toward us probably would have been very different, if that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah. And that sounds like such a frustrating experience to say the least. I'm glad that you really advocated to make sure that your complaint was taken seriously. And it is difficult. There's so many power dynamics there. Um, I think folks feel a certain degree of difficulty speaking their truth to the power of trained physicians. And, you know, we don't go to medical school, so, like, we don't know, and we just have to take whatever they say to a certain degree, or we just have to accept what they say. Well, that's one um, thing. That's one thing I, you, we can thank Juanita for. My, my Both Juanita and Keith, my parents, they – my parents were conversational, to say the least. <laughs> they, and, and my mother – my mother was the kind of person where, you know, back in the 60s, she was at a party where a police officer was called. Like, they were at a party, she and my dad, and a police officer was called because, this is, granted, this is in Brooklyn, but, you know, Brooklyn still had de facto um, Jim Crow. It wasn't de jour like the South, but there was still very very much Jim Crow here. And somebody called the police like, oh, my God, there's a, there's a party of Negroes. Like, so, so the police came and, and, like, were, like, you know, being manhandling people, and a, and a cop, like, pushed her and grabbed her and her first instinct my mom is a fighter her first instinct was to grab the lid of a metal trash can and slam it over his head <laughs> and like, and, and, you know and i'm like oh my god Bobby, hearing that story i'm like like you could have been like he could have especially in the 60s like I mean, we see how cops kill people now he, he could have killed you and she's like i know but like you know she's like i've never been one to like take anything lying down and you know my mother my mother's also r&b since she was a registered nurse and she I remember my mother's career, that was one thing that was always a, a problem for her. Like, she would tell doctors off. She's like, you know, as a nurse in hospitals, I see a lot of things that doctors, she's like, a lot of these doctors are arrogant. A lot of them are not necessarily always right. As a nurse, I see all the work we do. And, she's, and she, she used to always say, I should have just gone to, to medical school versus nursing school because I could have got paid more and, and I would have got respected more. But she was known in her hospitals for being a no-nonsense person. So a lot of the doctors did respect her because they didn't like her. And I was always raised to like, to like stand up for myself and other people. So I, I'm glad, that, and I'm seeing it play out now in other, in other aspects of my life, like at my job right now, for instance, and that's a whole other topic. My job has a problem with systemic racism and I'm one of the most vocal people. And I know people do not like me, but to be quite frank, like I see what you're doing. I'm not letting you do it to me and other people. I'm gonna call it out. So thank you Juanita for that. <laughs> and your voice and your passion is so needed. And it's only going to be of benefit to those around you mm-hmm. and in your community, certainly. Thank you. Like, you know, going back to the theme of why pancreatic cancer needs 
much more funding and much more resources allocated to it, I would encourage anybody who's listening to, to you know, take up that battle and and help. This cancer is like like I said, it's super deadly and it doesn't have a fair allocation of resources. So, if you are passionate about cancer and and beating cancer, if you're passionate about Black lives, if you are passionate about you know making sure that everybody has a fair shake. I encourage you to advocate for, you know, pancreatic cancer research, to lobby your elected officials, to get involved. There are organizations like PanCan, which is Pancreatic Cancer Network. There are a few others. I think there's a lot we all can do because, again, like there's so much that we unfortunately have been bogged down with in terms of biases that that affect who gets what healthcare. You know, it can be so overwhelming to think about, like, what can I do? And I really think these personal stories, like you sharing Juanita's story and your own story, of course, here today, you know, these are some of the most effective tools that we have in advocacy work. Telling these personal stories, such as the way that pancreatic cancer or health care disparities um, or racism, whatever the case may be, has affected an individual person's life or a family's life. You know, it, it really makes such a difference and it's powerful. So thank you for showing us what that looks like. And I know Juanita is very proud of you. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to say to someone who might be listening who is in a similar situation, either as a caregiver or someone who is bereaved? I would say be kind to yourself and be kind to others. I, I think one of the biggest takeaways that I got from cancer was I always thought of myself as a, as a pretty empathetic person, but I, you know, cancer showed me that I was not being as empathetic as I could be. And I I think, you know, being on this journey with my mother and my sister and learning to, to how to empathize with them in new ways, even being, you know, being on this journey with other cancer caregivers and being in group therapy, there are people in group therapy that I would never, <laughs> am I, am I, outside of cancer life have anything to do with people. I mean, people, not, even people who I, you know, in another, in another time and place, I don't think I would even like per se, but, um, but, you know, you know, but, you know, you're in therapy with them. You're hearing what they're experiencing. You're knowing what they're experiencing. Um, and it, it, it definitely gave me a greater sense of empathy. And it, 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 and it also, it also kind of highlights sometimes you never know what people are going through. So, that, you know, be kind of people because you never know what somebody might be experiencing in their lives outside of, you know, the context you see them in. And interestingly enough, I remember telling my um, my therapist, AJ, at Cancer Care, for my therapist for bereavement therapy, during the, during the COVID pandemic, one thing I was kind of grateful for was that my mom wasn't alive with cancer during this time. Because I, re- I recall, like, one of, the, one, of the, one of the most beautiful things during her, her journey with cancer is the way people treated her, especially as she became obviously sicker people, I think sometimes for her, it was a pick-me-up and it was just nice to have people treat her, you know, with love and kindness. Like completely strangers would see her and people would be just very kind. Like you see this person who looks obviously sick who you know has cancer. And, you know, being kind to the person, like, you know, showing affection and in ways, you know, with your mannerisms, with your, with your facial expressions, with your smiles, with your hugs. And I think in COVID, I can only imagine what it must have been like to be somebody who's in chemo treatment and you already have to, you know, keep a, you know, keep a distance from people because, or you can be very careful because you're immunocompromised, 
but now not being able to see someone smile when somebody smiles at you or not being able to get a, get a, you know, have somebody give you a hug, whether it be a loved one or a stranger, um, I, I, I can imagine how hard that would be. I can imagine how, what a challenge it would be. And I think I want to tell people while we're still in this pandemic to, to know that even though if you can't see people's faces, people are smiling at you, people are wishing you well. And despite all the ugliness in this world, which there's a lot of it, there is a lot of goodness. And I mean, and, and that sounds hokey. People, people can be both beautiful and terrible. Like, like I mentioned, the same way death can be. I think, and I think if we hold on to the beauty and encourage that, it can help us navigate through the, the terrible aspects of, of us as, as humans in our society. And, and, I, and I, I hope that somebody listening to this realizes that no, no matter how their cancer journey turns out, there, there are many things to be grateful and hopeful for on the other side. And however it turns out, you can, you can integrate those experiences and be better for them. I just feel like clapping. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Rasan, thank you so much. I know that hearing this, whoever is listening, you know, will feel very comforted by those words from you. And I'm just so glad I got to meet you and speak with you here today. So thank you so much for being a part of this. Rachel, the pleasure was all mine. I'm so happy that I was able to meet you and speak to you. And thank you for provi- providing this this service, not just to me, but anybody who's, a, who's an audience member. I think this is really valuable. And like I said, I know people, people need to hear about these topics and people need to know they're not in this alone. Well, I can really hear your passion for the issues. And I'm so glad that we have you here to speak to them on this platform. And I'm just really grateful for you taking the time to talk to us today. So thank you. I, I, I enjoyed it and I enjoyed you and I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care podcast. Cancer Care is the leading national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services, including case management, counseling, support groups, educational resources, and financial assistance to anyone affected by cancer. You can visit us online at cancercare.org or call our toll-free hope line at 800-813-HOPE. That's 800 800- 813-4673 to speak with a master's prepared oncology social worker.